Oh, okay, so we're on episode 14. Yeah. And it's kind of season three, isn't it? If you say so. I mean, we had a break. Right. And now we're not talking about crime cinema anymore. Yes. So I guess that is what the Americans might call a, a season change. Okay. Well, we'll call it season three. Okay. Season three, episode 13. I thought um, you said 14. Gone wrong already. Episode 14. Thank you very much. <laughs> so it's uh, season six. <laughs> episode, episode 927. Five. It's becoming like Star Trek The Next Generation. <laughs> Welcome to Discursion, a podcast where we talk about films um, on home media. And I guess it's a discursive excursion into film. Isn't <laughs> I like it. it. Yeah. And um, I think it's it's nice with, with uh, you know a series of um, podcasts to have some kind of theme linking the films. We're starting season three with a Max Offels film. And I think rather than decide on the theme in advance, maybe it's nice to see where the conversation goes. And, and, and then we can think of another film that might link nicely with that. Do you Excellent. agree? So this is the beginning of an emergent theme. An emergent theme. That hasn't emerged at this point. Yeah. And maybe half an hour later, yeah, it will have. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I've not introduced myself. My name is Stephen and I'm joined by... I'm Dominic. Um, and today we are talking about Max Offels, of, as I've said, um, his 1953 film, Madame de... Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> um, Which I believe, um, wasn't it released in the... UK, I think at the time, or it has it has been released in English-speaking markets as the earrings of Madame de. I think both are quite nice titles, but they 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 do seem just they slightly reinterpret the film. You know, I mean, the film starts and ends with a close-up of the particular earrings, so it makes perfect sense to say the earrings of Madame de. But somehow, the original title, you know, Madame of whoever this man i mean we know who he is we just don't ever, ever learn his name um i feel that the original title while not mentioning the earrings makes more of the parallels between the earrings and her right and the way the earrings are owned who they're owned by and things which circulate among men and raises those questions whereas if you say if you put the earrings in the title it puts the emphasis slightly it, differently it, it does and a possession and ownership is such an important theme uh, maybe we should say about about max Offals, just because um, he's he's quite a big figure, mm. and I feel like giving some background will help us interpret the film. Right. Um, so he's he's born in the in the early night. He's born in like nineteen o two, which is towards the end of the time period for Madame de. So, mm. uh, but he's not born in France. He's born in Germany as Max Oppenheimer, and makes a few studio films. His first films actually. Written by Emmerich Pressburger. Oh, brilliant. Now, that's a good, um, what do you call it? Factoid. I think it's a good factoid, yeah. And I don't know if you've, if any of Max Offal's stuff makes you think of The Archers and Powell and Pressburger, the British duo, but I feel like there are similarities between like Max Offal's later films like La Ronde and some of the, Oh, Rosalinda is, is quite similar, the Powell and Pressburger film. And we, we've spent a bit of time with Pell and Pressburg, haven't we? Teaching the Red Shoes and um, um, going over sequences with students and getting them to talk about the style, which isn't 
necessarily uh, showcasing, you know, the director, the auteur. No. Um, but is nevertheless quite noticeable and yeah, um, yeah. And, no, I th- integral. I th- yeah. It's quite interesting, you know, you know, watching films by both both directors that, yeah, style that calls attention to itself can thereby enhance story and character and you know c- contribute to those things rather than it being a trade-off between one and the other so you're either lost in the story not noticing or watching a film or you're constantly thinking about about camera movements um yeah which is something that max offels has often talked about in relation to the, the long take but that doesn't really get near i think the significance of his films no. talk about that in isolation i'm not sure how many directors you could actually just talk about the long take and get anywhere but no no it's a long take and the moving camera isn't it and then in this film in madame as much as in in any it's so um constantly on the move and and you can talk about i think there are metaphors i mean we've hinted at, at the maybe we should say a little bit more about unless you have more context you want like, to a bit, a bit more context yeah. but building on that point about how style is integral um with character in particular, Offal's, I think, throughout his career, makes what, what films that you could call women's films or, or the melodrama that are often from a, a woman's point of view. So he makes a film called Playing With Love in Germany, which becomes a kind of critic darling type film later on in post-war France. Um, is kind of re- recognised in Hollywood as well and helps him to get get his first few um, directing jobs. But he he has to leave Germany anyway um, because of Nazism and he changes na- his name from Max Oppenheimer, Jewish name, to, to Max Offels to try and fly under the radar. He, he's, so he's, 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 in, he's, in, he's in France for, for a while um, and, and working in theatre as well, of course. And then he moves to Hollywood and I think and struggles initially spends spends a few years doing not much at all and is sort of depressed and then he gets he gets as i say he gets picked up by preston sturges or um some other such director who's who's who remembers this career that he's had in europe and and um and so he's he has the sort of gateway into making hollywood kind of smaller films and then he builds up and up and then he makes letter from an unknown woman which is kind of where we'd mm. probably say his kind of golden period begins mm. in 1948 the reckless moment isn't is that 47 I, I'm, I'm quite fond of that with um with james mason yeah which is kind of a film noir yeah is it i thought it was 49 ah you would know better than me but numbers aside but then that places it that places it in in his uh Golden period, whatever you called it, so called, <laughs> yeah. Uh, which, yeah, I mean, no need to over periodize, but it, he has this clutch of films which, which are, are quite strongly in- interlinked, I think, and are from a woman's point of view, or they have pleasure and, mm. and sexuality at the core of them, and are quite complex in terms of viewpoint, right? Um, yes. So he's in, yeah. So he's in, he's in the states for a while, and then he moves back to France um, and and becomes a kind of master returned, um, and is picked up, I think, by the kind of Coyote Cinema crew. So he's put in this similar category as like Jean Renoir and Jean Cocteau, um, and makes a makes a series of films: um, Laurent, nineteen fifty; Le Plaisir, nineteen fifty two; and then Madame de, nineteen fifty three; and then his last um, films, um, Lona Montez. All of which are made with Christian Matras, the cinematographer. Right. 
who has also worked with Renoir mm. and Cocteau. So, mm. and obviously is an important person to talk about because of the, all the long takes. But that gets yeah. us, that kind of gets us Great. up to speed, yeah. I think. It's an interesting sort of periodization and moving because it, it, it doesn't quite fit with some of the more, I mean, you know, perhaps they're cliched, but, or, or perhaps just because his, his trajectory was sort of different, you know, from other directors. But it's very, it's quite easy to think in terms of, let's say, you know, the Hollywood director who then goes to America and kind of stays there. Um, you know, the kind of Fritz Lang is a sort of model, right? So sort of, and there used to be the big fights and, you know, people who claimed that, you know, no Fritz Lang film made in America was worth watching and then, you know, very much a, a sort of backlash against that. But still, there's, you know, you know, sort of German Lang versus American Lang because, okay, he did make films in, in Europe again uh, at the very end of his career, but such a long... But um, or other directors who perhaps you know struggle in America and and then go to Europe because they're not finding it hard to make films on the. But this is very interesting when you know I mean particularly yeah thinking about the context of Madame De that it's only a couple of years after he's been making films at, in the heart of sort of classic Hollywood yeah and he hasn't been struggling he's 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 been you know, you know successful yeah um, and 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 continues. To be so, I, I think he learns a kind of marketing strategy almost from being in Hollywood, and he's realizing um, that films, art films, are are having more of an audience in the states as well. So stuff he makes in Europe, he can do with a kind of European sensibility, but it, it also has a showing yeah. in 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 America, at least kind of East Coast New York kind yeah. of cinemas. And he 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 talks about people like Laurence Olivier making Hamlet and. Mm you know, who kind of fit that film kind of fits within the long take kind of tradition, but because Olivier worked with William Wyler, but they, yeah, they all, um, these films are kind of having a bit more of a, yes, a, but a it market pat- appeal as well as yeah. being kind of interesting films. Yes. I think it's pretty, I mean, he's probably not somewhere we'll, we'll sort of go much into because we want to talk mostly about, you know, Madame Dern detail, but it is, yeah, it, it suggests it might quite helpfully sort of complicate some of our cliches about, Hollywood versus European cinema, even in in the forties and fifties. Not that he's not that Ophel's Hollywood films are not are not different, and that you can't talk about, talk about about the differences. But it's also not um, like again off the top of my head. It seems more interesting to talk about the similarities and the the, the relationship between in the letter from an unknown woman and and Madame de. You know, rather than rather than thinking, oh right, this this really re- really reveals sort of you know profound pr- profound differences between the two, yeah, filmmaking in contexts. You know, yeah, um, yeah. The, and I think I think the the woman's film idea kind of right. carries over as well and gets yeah. blended with some right. of this more you know, let's say European theatrical. Yeah. So there's a question. So, so yeah, absolutely. There's no need to have like some binary contrast between no, no. his West Coast American career and his Western European career. I mean, so there is a thing maybe with with this film about what kind of film it is, because it is, I mean, like you said, the women's film is probably, um, I don't know about how it was marketed in the US. I, I mean, I suppose, I mean, it probably was seen as a sort of, I'm sure it was seen as a high highbrow European art sort of film, but it it must have been seen as some sort of melodrama sort of women's film. It's a sort of, you know, tragic love triangle. Yeah. Um, and I can see it easily being 
not easily perhaps because i i suggest that someone who who saw it only as this really really wasn't watching very carefully but you could mistake it for a for a glossy melodrama with you know with very attractive stars um sort 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 of circulating around each other and perhaps not much else um Yes, I, <laughs> you, I guess um, there, there are many place, places in which you could put it, and you you wouldn't want to pigeonhole it. Um, you know, you could you could you could talk about it in terms of a kind of um, the appeal of, of of British and French cinema in, in America at the time. You could talk about it as a woman's film, so coming after the war period where lots of women are going to the movies, mm. um, and and there's a boom kind of in that genre. Mm. And it carries over, and you know, people like Douglas Sirk are kind of mm. still making melodrama, and it's like a heyday. But it's also, as you've said, you've just made me think, it's also quite glossy in terms of the set design and stuff, and it kind of fits into the boom for post-war historical drama yeah. and widescreen epics. Al- yeah. Almost, almost, it's an Academy film in yes. black and white, Madame Dur, but it mm. has the kind of surface appeal mm. of a period piece, mm. doesn't it? And I think, yeah, Sirk is a really interesting point of comparison because... If you watch it with half a, uh, whatever the unit of attention is, I don't know what the unit of attention is, you know, but half one of them, <laughs> uh, then you'll notice that that description I just gave is, is, of course, you know, woefully inadequate and that would be, you know, a gross misrepresentation. But there is a, um, there clearly is attention because it is some sort of melodrama and the love um, interest or, the, you know, the love triangle plot is... Well, it seems to me it's kind of taken seriously. On the other hand, the film's like full of these ironies, all sorts of ironies. And as we mentioned right at the beginning, it's clearly about you know, you know capitalism and gender relations and you know, possessions. I mean, I said, I think I said, kind kind of circling around each other, these characters. But that's 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 explicit. The whole, you know, the, so so a little bit of the plot, right? So I mean, the plot. I mean, just let's do the plot. It's actually, very simple. But, let's do the plot. You know, there is a woman. Um, who we never know what her surname is, and of course her surname is her husband's, you know, who's Madame de whatever, who's um, Daniel Dachier, um, who, um, and her husband Charles Boyer, who's who's a general, so it's kind of wealthy general. I mean, presumably not like right at the top of of the wealth thing, but perfectly comfortable. Yeah, maybe um, even sort of hereditary wealth if he's in a military it, it, family. I'm not quite sure, but yeah. Um, but it's, she, peace, it's, it's kind of relatively it's peacetime as well yes, in the film. So there right. is a cha- there's the kind of sense of a general at his leisure. Yes, he talks about Napoleon, but he's not actually actually no. going out fighting any battles. He no. just gets to sort of sort of shout at his underlings when he wants to feel important. Um, but she spends beyond whatever her means are, kind of anyway. So the the very beginning of the film is this close with the, the earrings, which. I mean, then the camera moves away from them, but it comes back to the earrings because she's trying to choose what she can sell to get to get a bit more cash, and she decides that the earrings are the things she has the least emotional investment in, and they're earrings which were given to her by her husband, obviously. And the film basically kind of tracks the 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 history of these earrings, um, but with a and there are sort of I think quite quite consciously undertaken you know ironies. So yes, they have to be bought bought back. Uh, well, the the jeweler is, unco- is un- uncomfortable about getting these earrings, so he he sells them back to to Charles Boyer, who then sort of keeps them because he has something on his wife because he he knows that she sold them, but she doesn't know that he knows. Um, and they're a nice pun. I mean, you get lots of this kind of thing in the film where 
you know, there's like a pun, a pun on pardon, as in pardon both, yeah, as in come again, and as in, as in pardon. Yeah. So yeah, they're you know they're both in bed. Well, they've been their beds, which are in separate rooms. And yes, it's like you know, uh, is he saying, is he saying sorry? I I didn't catch that, or asking for pardon. So all all these things get played with. He gives the 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 earrings to one of his mistresses who he's sending away but then they happen to be brought in Constantinople by the third point of the love triangle who's uh, Victoria de Sica the legendary director of Bicycle Thieves among all sorts of other things who's playing a kind of fairly again a, a, yes he's, he's, he's a diplomat of some kind right again a sort, sort of wealthy diplomat who doesn't appear to do a great deal of diplomating um but it's, and and yeah, he gives the earrings to her, not knowing again these ironies, not knowing you know what they are. Um, uh, and eventually, at the end of the film, she um, she donates them to the church. <laughs> she does, yeah. Um, but it's yeah again, it's, it's, it just strikes me. Yes, it's interesting that so that yeah, so all those things are clearly both there. You know the the. I would argue clearly that the the love story is taken seriously, and there and there clearly is a genuine love of some kind between between Madame Du and between between De Sica. It's that there's not between her and her her husband, but and, and then there's also this interest in the the economic power relationships and the circulation and who's controlling who and you know, all that. But if it were were sort of simply the earrings of Madame Du, you almost feel you would then the earrings would lead you away from those main characters you know but you never actually that never really happens if the if the film were titled the earrings of madame Durr, yes you i think you would probably um lose the film's ambivalence um and and probably pay less attention to the to the to the kind of husband's infidelity um hmm. which is integral to the argument about the imbalance of power relations you know yes, the fact that she's yes. punished for yeah, having yeah. an affair and he's well, not... well there are all these questions about about the like you say this of social uh, power relations but also conventions because it seems to me at least sort of um or at least this was my thinking when i just watched it most recently um was that um and again, this is that this is a very familiar idea, but it seems that that what the husband is upset with is that she's fallen in love with someone else rather than that, that she's sleeping with someone else. I, I mean, not that he would necessarily be entirely happy. You know, clearly that their, their agenda asymmetries um, there, and that he, of course, clearly feels that it's um, um, entirely understood that he will have affairs. But it's also entirely understood that he won't fall in love with his mistresses. So I sort of think, you know, there's a reference to her suitors at one point, you know, and he says, he says that, you know, they're boring and he sends them away. And so, yeah, he, he doesn't quite say it's fine to have your suitors just sort of make sure I'm not around at the time. But it, there's a hint of that kind of thing. But I think it's that she actually falls in love with, with the other guy, which is, but again, that is a sort of melodramatic cliche. And the film is, it's full of cliches that it, or if you call them cliches, you know. Familiar, familiar situations but yeah just to pick up the thread that i didn't sort of pick up a while back um about the comparison with cirque i think just that's what's mm. really interesting with this is that um with the, so we've been watching this uh the bfi um 
you know, Blu-ray edition of this film, um, which is not a recent release, but it's been out for a while. But it's yeah, and it's very handsomely done. Um, but in it, in in some of the extra materials, um, some of Ophels's collaborators talk about how he really was a ladies' man, and he really he he sort of wanted that in a great love affair, but he didn't actually have one. And in fact, he was a bit of a womanizer, you know, but was sort of, sort of, sort of very good at all the stuff that the Deceker character does in the film, you know, with sort of, sort of buying flowers exactly the right moment and taking people to exactly the right restaurant, all that. But that also he had quite a lot of contempt for a certain kind of moneyed class who didn't have to work and who just wandered around doing, you know, that kind of thing. And it seems that, that sort of biographical thing seems to be actually quite helpful because there clearly is... I mean, we mentioned ironies, ironies more than once. Um, you know, there clearly are sort of s- satirical, maybe, or at least verging on satirical, kind of, or at least certainly critical kind of comments on this kind of society and its, yeah, its mm. economics and all that. But there's also this um, this interest in the love affair, which I think seems to me to be to to be quite genuine. And again, it's sort of sort of like Cirque, yeah, has you know sometimes been i mean there's a yeah uh barbara klinger's book about on the, on the, the reception of the cirque history of reception of cirque and mm. this idea okay he's just seen as right these films are simply froth you know simply for women which of course says a lot about <laughs> all sorts of assumptions and then the idea like no 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 they're not that at all that's just the surface they're just you know biting satirical satirical attacks the entire thing is heavily ironic and then that you know i think there's been more of a movement to say actually we don't necessarily need need to choose between those two or that, that that's a crude um way of, of of putting things to frame it as a choice between those two and you know someone like robert pippin now you're writing about he just published a short book about three of the you know, most famous cirque you know color melodramas would say cirque's all about irony but he thinks he takes he thinks cirque's takes his characters incredibly seriously he's not laughing at his characters and uh there, there's a wonderful quote i'm sorry i can't attribute it but that uh cirque is one of the few directors of that period you could argue who shows women thinking sort of sustained mm. thoughts mm. mm. um and letter from an unknown woman there's a great close-up yeah. on on the revelation of yes exactly. of, of, of being forgotten by a lover exactly. as well by lisa so so yeah it, that i think the cirque the cirque um and uh, Awful's overlap is, is yeah, hmm. is strong. Yeah, no, because that's what I was, uh, yeah, it sounds like, you know, you would agree. That's what I'd, I'd argue with this film. Again, it's like there is that sort of sort of opulence, which is not simply there to be undercut, but but there is a quite sharp-eyed view on all, sort, on, on all sorts of things, and those things can both be be true. It's It's an interesting question whether they have to be, both present but in conflict with each other mm. or whether they can also yeah. somehow you know add up um you know sort of complement each other yes lindsay anderson i think in his sight and sound review is quite unfair to this film and says that it's just an excuse for a string of decorative images or something and nothing of the interior lives of the characters are shown right which I think is unfair, partly because how else could film show interior lives beyond a succession of, you know, nicely put together but, images? But 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 also that's kind of the point of the psychology of I think Madame Durr as yes. well. The fact that she's interested yes. in materiality. And so. I think that's a really interesting point because that's actually that's very nice. That 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 was something I was 
exactly thinking of mentioning next was what do we do with the acting styles in in this film because they are quite um undemonstrative quite right they're not there's no there's lots of there's lots of heavy heavy sorts sort of performance which is actually very demonstrative but it's all characters performing socially you know so so it's not just the actors performing those characters it's the characters you know all the i mean all sorts of um i i think i think you know uh you could analyze this whole you could go through this whole film looking at the way that charles boyer calls people mon cher ami you know you know he calls all sorts of people people my dear friend he calls you know he calls the seeker that a number of times he calls other people that and it has all sorts of in some places it's heavily ironic in in other places it's quite unthinking you know all that. but yes there's not a there's not a trace of uh, of the method in in any of the performances i don't think right there's not a there's not a kind of you know um sort of very demonstrative externalizing of the internal question yeah. of the character but then like you say the question is whether whether they have that and whether if they don't have that that's because the film is is some sort of superficial um kind of treatment that is not interested or whether it's something and i think i'm inclined i, I mean you put it very nicely just when you just said about it madame die sort of feel almost she doesn't have a a very rich internal life, I feel, but the film somehow manages also to 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 be quite generous towards mm. her. Mm. Yeah, the, um, you're you're almost paraphrasing the general. Actually, he says to her at one point, "Our marriage is only superficially superficial," <laughs> um, which I think is a good key to the film yeah. in some ways. But uh, the uh, this is explored i think that through through some of the objects in the film notably the earrings so you could do a kind of marxist feminist reading of the circulation of commodities but they're also more than that so Mm. there's lots of close-ups on the fact that they are diamond earrings and the way they're portrayed matters the the kind of individual sort of relationship as well with them so the fact that they're embraced by um uh, Madame de towards yes. the end of the film almost as if they were Vittorio de Sica. Obviously, one could do a Marxist reading of all sorts of kinds, but also just to understand it, you've got to do that. I mean, something which you could call a Marxist, or at least a you know a sort of a reading which is is critical of 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 a certain form of capitalism, capitalist society in a certain way. That seemed to me would be simply to understand understand the film, you know, because mm. the film again like. Like so much of 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 Ophel's has all 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 these as well as all these words that mean more than words of two things. It has all these um, so many scenes which are repeated or which are which are varied. Which of course is something that that Victor Perkins wrote really astonishingly about about Letter from an Unknown Woman. Right, the 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 scene where um, Jane Fontaine looks down from mm. from the top of the stairwell. I think it's just un- understanding the film to notice that there's a bit when. When very cruelly, um, the husband forces his wife to to give the earrings to a to a, to a relatively poor relation of hers, who's who's just had a baby, and he forces at this point because, as you said, they have come to represent you know her lover for her. So it's so it's a deliberately cruel gesture. But then, when the earrings start circulating on the on the market again, it's because that family have sold them because they. They need the money, and I think it's 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 not 
overly emphasised, but you're clearly meant to notice that they genuinely need the money, whereas her, her sale of the earrings that sets the whole film off is because she wants more more fancy things. She's not actually in financial straits. Is that potentially a sequence we could look at? I know we've, we have lined one up, but I, I think I know exactly the scene you're talking about. Yes. It's, it's very near the end of the film. That would be an interesting one. So let's do that now and then we'll come back. Film viewing in progress. Okay, so anyway, yeah, we've just watched the sequence from 123.44 to 126.20 something. So, yeah, only like a three minute three minute sequence but it's it's wonderfully well the whole film is so wonderfully shaped they arrive in this carriage and you 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 don't know you know why they're there um going to this house and it and it's a sort of country house but it's small compared to the kind of places you know they live in um but it's almost like an abandoned house um you know it's like a, yeah it's a you know an empty house which they might be i don't know you know moving into it as, as a or taking on as a summer house or something but it almost seems like you know the wallpaper's not quite done you know um not quite finished and um and there's no sound and then it's only just when you get outside this one door you just start to hear sort of voices but it's quite it's still at that point subtle and then suddenly they're in a room which is is you know full of people who are all talking and there's you know you know nice wallpaper on on the walls and there's a grandfather clock i think and all you know and all this sort of stuff and it almost seems like well that doesn't quite sort of make sense but i take it i suppose the actual explanation is that the family are too poor to keep the whole house in a decent in a decent condition so they probably only live in a few rooms of what you know, by the standards of most people in this film, is not an enormous house anyway. But you can only, or at least I can only get that kind of later. It almost seems like they go from one zone into an entirely other. The whole scene, I mean, of course, the whole film is about this, but the whole scene is about these, you know, social performances. And we see sort of as they, at the very beginning, as, as uh, Monsieur and Madame de, you know, get out of the... Um, of, the um, of the carriage, she shoots him a real evil which is kind of quite a really a real sort of, sort of dirty look um which of course she can't she can't do later when they're sort of surrounded by people but also he's sort of he's in a mode that he's in sort of i guess or a version of a mode he's in quite often in in the film of a sort of exaggerated lightness of touch and sort of exaggerated ease of ease of behavior when of course there's something you know he's he's punishing his wife but he does it all with wit you know, a sort of, you know, this sort of pretense that all they're doing is simply is simply turning up to give something nice to his 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 niece who's had a baby. And of course, like, there's no pretense that he thinks his wife thinks that that's what's what's happening. <laughs> there's almost almost not. I mean, it is a pretense for the other people when they're in when they're actually in the room. But when it's just him and his wife and the maid. It's a really interesting pretense that isn't a pretense, you know. It's a sort of way of actually rubbing her 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 face in it, you know. But she's ill at this point, and she has to be supported by him. But of course, he thinks that that she's at the very least, you know, hamming it up. Yeah. He he he, he doesn't think she's seriously ill, or, or at least he thinks that she's in in indulging in 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 believing she's ill. So he thinks I think their relationship is more, or their battle is a bit more even. Yeah. You know than it actually is. There is, um, um, yeah, there is uh, what would be called gaslighting throughout the film, yeah. where he responds to her fainting and being mm. sick in a really aggressive way. And Which just you, well, you could compare it to another Charles, Charles Boyer film, couldn't you? You could actually look at how he performs in here and how he performs in Gaslight. You could. Um, she's crying publicly out of a, a genuine emotion, 
but it's not even that people don't understand. It's not even that the people around say, how strange that she should be crying. It's obvious to them that, that they know precisely why she's crying and they're wrong. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's not really um, really pointed up through a line of dialogue or something. I think it's sort of the it's situational and it's it's the it's the camera work and it's the way in which Offal's kind of builds 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 connections in in that way. Some of which the characters might not even realise in that moment that they are part of. Yeah. Um, but it, it I suppose it would fit quite ni- nicely with a a feminist reading of the film and some of the dialogue in the film is that she's being projected upon whether she likes it or not and there's n- nothing there's no conflict or anything where she sort of fights back it's just something that is is daily and it reminds me of an earlier point in the film where she says to Dasika's character um I only want to be sort of seen by you and and of, co- of course you can't help but be seen by everyone in whatever way they they want to but it Right. Yeah. So, some, mm. again, remind me of kind of Mulvey's stuff on, on on the male gaze. You know, yeah, it's, it's interesting. How how yeah. are you seen and by who, and do you have any control over how yes. how you are seen? The moving camera has to relate to all these things as well because the moving camera is so clearly observing the characters and accompanying the characters. And I think I think I think that's quite helpful, just in terms of how you're seeing what you're seeing. I don't find myself having a sort of strong sense of a sort of narrational voice almost that you know that that the that the camera has a personality as a character which, which which is separate from the the characters at least most of the time I don't think I feel that it's more sort of being with them so sort of accompanying seems quite a nice word it's showing you know there are films that make more of a, a sharper distinction on there part of the reason why the sequence we've watched um stands out on, on a rewatch is the emphasis on continuity through desperately kind of um dressed sets or yeah. sp- spaces and there's a location in there as well isn't it but mm. um continuity clearly it means something in in in, in different contexts for for offals. sometimes yeah. it's very important yeah um i think there's something to be said about sustained view of a character going through a transition i think yes. the facial performances are good. very important yes particularly for madame we're constantly shifting shifting viewpoints you know, looking at things in different ways. And the characters are constantly looking at things anew or seeing things differently. But that that's done precisely, like you say, in terms of continuity and fluidity, rather than in terms of, in terms of you know, abrupt jumps from one to the other. Yeah, I think we can agree. It's it's a we would say it's more than a moving camera. It's a fluidly moving camera. Mm. So there are other ways in which you could have could have done this. Yeah, and it's definitely not a sort of. Um, we're not talking about rapid rapid pans or no. dizzying like we are in Lola Montez, maybe dizzying three sixty shots, right. stuff like that in yes. in relation to this film. Um Yeah, I mean yeah, it clearly contributes another level to the rhythmic you know, activity of the film, but it is kind of it moves at the pace of the of the characters. I mean it it does that literally. <laughs> yeah. But it seems to do that sort of I don't know, cinematically. <laughs> I mean, that, that sounds a bit... <laughs> it sounds like we've got a, a uh, you know, hesitant to go on the record and say this, but uh, we've got a few ideas for uh, for, the, for the next film or the next few films then, maybe, whether it's another Ruffles film or a film that uses long takes or yes, film that has uh, beats and... and it may be and, either a film which does it compar- comparably or a film, we could look for a film which, which does something comparable... You know, very jaggedly, <laughs> you know. So. If you if you have any thoughts, do do tweet us at Discursion Film. We are also on Spotify, 
Apple Podcasts and Acast. Thanks for listening. Yes, thanks for listening. That's yeah. We'll be back with whatever film we we or we choose or you suggest. <laughs> but it will definitely be a film.